All right. Well, hey, as you can tell, exciting times around here. But today we are continuing in a series that we began a few weeks ago called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. It's about the kings of Israel and Judah. We call this series The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, not necessarily because we um, uh, love old Western movies. Although if you've been following on social media, you may have seen that uh, both Steve Steele and I have had a, a really fun time kind of discovering our inner cow cowboy uh, spirit there. And um, so uh, stay tuned for the exciting conclusion of that. And hopefully no one um, gets hurt, us or the horses during that time. But um, we actually call this series, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, because it perfectly describes this season, this time um, in the history of Israel, this Old Testament, uh, this portion of the Old Testament. It reaches a high point, Israel does, under King David. That's kind of the high point, really, of the whole nation of Israel. And then under King Solomon as well. But right away, we see that after Solomon, um, and because of some of Solomon's uh, choices in life, we see that the kingdom begins to be torn apart. Eventually, God's people, and it's just so tragic to think about this, God's people are torn into two separate nations. And so you've got through war and kind of fighting, you've got Israel in the north and you've got Judah in the south. And in this period that we're studying right now, both of these nations, Israel and Judah, are headed for judgment and they're headed for destruction. We're going to see that more fully next week. But in that period from Solomon to the the fall of both of these nations, there are actually 40 different kings between Israel and Judah. Some of them are good. Most, if not uh, many of them, if not most of them are bad, and a few are downright um, ugly. And so uh, that's why we called this series that. But we didn't just start studying the kings of Israel, kind of out of the blue. If you've been around the church um, for a number of years, about five years ago, we made a decision that we wanted to systematically walk our way through the Old Testament story. So not only can we know all of it, but we can see how it all fits together. Um, And starting about five years ago, we said we're going to take a book or or two a year through kind of the Old Testament narrative, and we began in the book of, of Genesis. Now, one of the things when you journey through the Old Testament that you can't help but discover is kind kind of the the crazy up and down nature uh, for God's people. It's like this spiritual and moral roller coaster that God's people are always on. Ultimately, it's because it's pointing us to our need for a savior. Really coming out of the Old Testament, it's a reminder of how much we need Christ. But you see this kind of roller coaster that the people are on. And so right back at the beginning, we began in, at the beginning with Genesis chapter 1. And, and it's really the high point of, of, of all of it. It's the creation. And God is at, at, at peace with, with man. And man is at peace with creation, with one another. And that's a real high point. And then you turn the page and you come to Genesis 3. And the fall takes place and sin enters in. And there's the flood. And then there's a high point when God calls Abraham to be the father of a great And he puts Abraham in a covenant relationship. And he says, your descendants are going to be a great people. And then you go forward a little bit and those great people are slaves in Egypt. And now you're in the book of Exodus. And and so they start as slaves in Egypt and that's a real low point. But then God miraculously brings them out through the Red Sea. And that's an amazing high point in the story. And you'd think that it would be this great momentum for them because God brings them through the Red Sea. But the very next thing we see is what? One of the 
low points of the story. They wander in the desert for 40 years. God gives them the law, but they have a hard time following it until finally another high point comes. And through the strong and courageous leadership of Joshua, they cross the Jordan River and they go in and at last they take hold and they, they, there's a conquest of the promised land God promised way back to them through Abraham. And, and that's kind of a high point in the story. And then jo- Joshua dies and almost immediately there's a downward spiral known as the time of the judges. What we know about the judges and during that time is everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. And so do you see how it's this constant up and down, back and forth? And one of the things that makes God's word so powerful is the story that we have in here so often mirrors our story. Our times are very different. Our culture is very different. We're separated by, in many cases, 3,000 years. And yet their story is so close to our story. And and all of us can relate to the ups and downs of the human experience. If you've lived a little bit, you know that's how life goes, right? There's good times that are followed by challenging times. There's times if your life is like mine, and I imagine it is, that you're close to God. And man, almost right away there are temptations and things that pull us away and and cause us or, or call us to drift away. We go through times of peace and then almost seems like they're chased right away by seasons of conflict and upheaval. And I don't know about you, but have you ever wondered what is it that causes this constant spiritual up and down? What is it in the human condition and the story of this, this world? And maybe a better question than what causes it is, is there something that I can do that can help me break that cycle in my life? Am I just a slave to that constant up and down? Or is there something that I can do that will put me on that constant path to not only be right with God, but to be right with with people. And if you've ever asked that question, then good for you because today we are gonna see at least some of that answered in the story that we are going to look at, uh, the life of King Josiah, one of the greatest kings of all. However, things don't always come easy for Josiah. Um, He had to take some steps and he had to, to do some things that brought God's blessing. And I'll just put my cards on the table. My hope is that we would see these things in Josiah's life And that each of us would say, I want to take one, if not all of those steps in my life as well. So today's message is called, What It Takes to Make Real Change. And we're going to see three movements in the life of Josiah that lead to a great revival in his life personally, um, and also a great revival in the nation of Judah, which is at a down point when we come into this story. So these three movements are a movement of holy uh, discontent, of holy ambition, and of holy surrender. And as I said, it's my hope that we would come away with the desire to follow some of these. So open your Bibles, please, to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. You can find that on your device as well. 2 Chronicles 34, you actually have the same story in 2 Kings 22, um, but we are going to look at it in Chronicles. And as you're turning there, you need to know that before we even get to the, the good story of Josiah, that there are some, some serious barriers in the backstory of Josiah that he had to overcome with God's help. So as we look at the backstory, you're going to see some serious barriers um, there. And I, I want to point out three of them. And the first one is you've got to take a look at Josiah's terrible family background. This guy, guy comes from a serious, messed up family. So last week, Steve uh, led us in a, a message on Josiah. 
um, Jehoshaphat. And from Jehoshaphat to Josiah, we actually have skipped ahead uh, quite a ways. Um, It's 11 kings passed between uh, Jehoshaphat to uh, Josiah. I think of those kings, there's three, counting Josiah, that are good kings. There are six that are um, bad kings. And there are two that are downright ugly. Those two that I'm talking about happen to be Josiah's father and his grandfather, his grandfather Manasseh and his father Amen. They comes from a terrible um, family. So first, a little bit about Manasseh. Manasseh ruled over Judah for 55 years. Could you imagine having the same king for 55 years? That'd be a little more than my whole life. We had the same president of our country. I can't even imagine that. Um, and Manasseh was a bad king. In fact, not only did Manasseh not follow God, because a lot of them kind of chose to not follow God, But Manasseh actually works against the things of God. And he promotes a culture that actually gets rid of God in some of the most important places. It feels a little like the days in which we live. Um, you can read the lowlights of, of Manasseh's life in, in 2 Chronicles 33. Let me just read a few verses here. Beginning in verse 2 of 2 Chronicles 33, it says this, that Manasseh did evil in the eyes of the Lord following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So he was just like all the other nations around him. Manasseh rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. So the high places were places of pagan worship, usually up on a mountain. uh, And they were, we'll get to those in a little bit, but they were a place where people went against following Yahweh and, and participated in all sorts of idol worship. The high places are an important thing to understand in the story of kings. So he not only brought back the high places that his father before him had got rid of, but he also, look at this, he erected altars to the Baal and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to to all of the starry hosts and he worshiped them. Get this, he built altars where? In the temple of the Lord, which the Lord had said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. Get this, he sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft. He sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing God's anger. So notice, as I said, Manasseh not only allows the worship of idol, but he goes so, so far as to actually build altars to worship these idols. Where? In the temple. In the place that was meant to be set aside for God, he pushes God out and welcomes all of these others in. Now remember, the, the, they're, they're supposed to be people of this covenant relationship, and at the heart of this covenant is the law and the Ten Commandments. And the first of the two commandments is this, you shall have no other gods before me. Couldn't be any more clear. The second command is this, you shall not make or worship or bow down to any idols, right? Couldn't be more clear. But Manasseh is sucked in by all of the other nations around him. And before long, he's worshiping the things that God created. He's worshiping the the stars. They're making statues and worshiping them. They're uh, practicing witchcraft, consulting mediums. And maybe worst of all, you read this little sentence that he participated in what we know was the uh, the worship of, uh, of an idol by the name of Molech that actually required sacrifice of your children. This demonic God required that people sacrifice their children to them. And the king of God's people, the king of Judah, Manasseh, 
participates in this and even promotes it. So after 55 years of pretty much pushing away and destroying the things of God, Manasseh dies. Here's the deal. His son Amon actually is worse than him. It says that he actually did more evil and he increases uh, the evil. In fact, probably the best thing that could be said about Josiah's dad's Amon's reign was this. It only lasted two years because people didn't like him so much that they actually assassinated the guy. And I went to all the time to explain that family background because it's out of that family background that I just described that Josiah rises up to greatness and Josiah breaks the cycle which is a reminder to each and every one of us. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what dysfunction you come from. It doesn't matter the negative patterns in your family history. Sure, those have an influence and they're, they're real and we can't ignore them, but we are not slaves to them. Out of that family background rises up one of the greatest kings of all. And, and some of the most godly people that I know are people that come from all sorts of dysfunctional and and difficult backgrounds. And I applaud and I celebrate and I stand with those people that break the cycle. And if you're one of those people, way to go. If you're struggling to be that person, we encourage you. You don't have to be a slave to the things that your family passed on to you. You can break that cycle. And, And how do I know that? Because Josiah is that guy. But it's not just kind of Josiah's family background that he has to deal with. Is There's also kind of a cultural climate that rejected God. These two go hand in hand because it's his grandfather and his father that kind of brought about this, this culture. Um, but we already talked a little bit about the worship of Molech that required the sacrifice of children. We read about all kinds of other spiritual things. But probably the two main idols that people worshipped at that time uh, are the, 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 the gods Baal and Asherah. So maybe you've heard those names in our study um, already. It's important for us to kind of know a little bit about those. You see those names a lot. So just a little bit about them. Um, Baal or Baal uh, was a deity that represented agriculture and rainfall. Baal was often represented by a bull or something like that, and he was known to be the god of storms and the god of rain. Now, Israel was an agricultural society, right? Um, They were very dependent on the rain. There weren't a lot of streams and rivers in that area. And so much like in California, if you are going to be prosperous, if you are going to be wealthy, you need water. And so they depended on the rain and the storms. And so um, what they would do is they would would worship Baal um, so that he could help make them wealthy and have the things that, that they wanted by bringing the rain. Then there was Asherah. Asherah was a Canaanite fertility goddess, often represented by a, a woman. And if she wanted, if you wanted to have a lot of children, which you did because they were helpful, and or if you were the Gaithers and wanted to have a bunch of children, um, uh, or if you wanted your livestock to reproduce, um, what you would do is you would worship. Asherah, the fertility goddess. Now, we're not going to get into all of it. We don't need to be too PG-13 with this whole thing. But as a fertility goddess, the, uh, the worship of Asherah was explicit at the, you know, at, at the least. The symbols that some are, you know, you can still find in ar- uh, archaeology were, were, were pretty much just pornographic kind of, of symbols. And so basically, in Josiah's day, it was very common that they worshipped wealth or money and they worship sex. And I don't know about you, but I am so glad we don't live in a culture that does anything like that. I mean, whoo, 
But the point is, sometimes we look around and we say it is hard to be a Christian in this world. And there's so many things that seem to be pushing back against God and so many things that are holding me back and there's so many problems. And you need to hear that it's not for us to make those excuses because it's out of that environment that rises up Josiah who leads this great revival. And then the third thing that Josiah has to overcome are just his own personal shortcomings. Uh, Most uh, famous and maybe the, the biggest one is when Josiah becomes the king, he is actually eight years old. This kid is eight years old when he takes uh, the throne. And so kind of the hero in this story we're about to get to is a third grader. Now, I don't know what you were like in third grade. I was thinking a little back, back about myself. I was probably not equipped to be the king uh, as an, an eight-year-old. But I thought maybe today times are different. And so last Sunday, I actually went into some of our Sunday school classes to interview a few of our kids um, and see what they would do if they became king. Let's take a look at this. So this is Nash, you guys. Nash is seven years old. If you were the king, what would you do? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a hard question, I know. (laughs) For the food of the whole country, what would it be? Pizza. All right, if you were the queen... What would you do? I would make us all vegetarians and live in harmony with animals. You would make us vegetarians and live in harmony with animals. Are you a vegetarian? No. Okay. I think I would want to make dogs the royal pet. Oh, dogs the royal pet. I think that's a great idea. What would you do? I would tell everyone about God. You would tell everybody about God. That is awesome. That's a great answer. You would help everybody in need. Provide food and money for the people. Always candy, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Sounds good. I'd like to live in your kingdom. <laughs> good job. All right, so there you go. Maybe some future kings and queens in there. Um, well, I don't know who it was in Josiah's life that, that inspired him. We, we have the name of his mother and his, his grandmother. That maybe it was their prayers. We don't know what it was. But we know that something turns in Josiah. And when he becomes king at eight years old, he is ready for these three movements in his life um, that are not only going to break the cycles that we just talked about, but lead to some incredible revival for himself and for his nation. So Let's dig into those uh, three movements. The first thing that we see happens to Josiah is he is moved with a holy discontent. A holy discontent. What do I mean by that? I mean that Josiah was unsatisfied with the status quo that was passed down to him. He took a look, took a look around at the world and he said, this is not the way that God meant it to be. I am not satisfied with it. I am discontent with the holiness uh, for that. I remember when I was a young pastor meeting with a a guy that was an older pastor, kind of a mentor to me, and he said, and I've thought about it all these years, he said, you need to pay attention to a holy discontent in your life. And here's the way he described it. He said, what are those things that make you hit your fist against the table and say, that's not right, or that's not okay? And maybe those are things that are in your own life. Maybe those are things that are in your family. Maybe they are things in your church, and that's not okay. And maybe there's things in our world, in our community, 
that make us bang our, our hand against the, our, the table and say, that's not how God created it to be. That's not what it should be like for those people. That, that's not the way it should be. And that leads to kind of a holy discontent. And for Josiah, that holy discontent was huge because it, it led him to some ruthless elimination of the evil in his world. So let's jump in finally to the story of Josiah. Um, we're now in chapter 34, verse 1, where we read this. It says, Josiah, as I said, was eight years old when he became the king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he followed the way of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. What a great thing to be said. And in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, but now he's 16 years old, he began to seek the God of his father David. In the 12th year, when he was now 20 years old, he began to get this. To do what? To purge Judah and Jerusalem of those high places that we talked about. And the Asherah poles and the idols. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. Did he just tear them down? No, check this out. He did what? He cut them to pieces. And he cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them. And what did he do? He smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on the altars so that that he purged Judah and Jerusalem. In in the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and and in the ruins around them. And he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles, and he crushed the idols to powder. And he cut cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel, and they went back to Jerusalem. Okay, so you need to notice something about Josiah. Josiah is different than some of these other kings that we've read about before. Because we've read about other kings that make the choice that they're not going to worship the idols or even that they're going to turn away from the worship of idols. But a lot of times you read about these kings and there's a little qualifier that that is included. It says they didn't worship those, those, those false gods, but they also didn't tear down the high places. Or they also didn't remove the altars or they didn't remove the priests or something like that. And that's not the case with Josiah. Uh, right? It says that he actually tears these things down. Uh, Josiah goes the whole way and completely destroys that, gets rid of that temptation by destroying all of it. I actually was reading a little bit about some of the archaeology uh, uh, digs that have been done in recent times, and there's several places that are pagan places of worship that they find on top of these, like ashes and, and crushed stones and even some um, human remains in, in kind of the burial sites, and, and they say that some of this may even gone back to a reformer um, like Josiah. Because what he does is he says, I'm going to be faithful and, and to not just get rid of these things, but I am going to completely remove the temptations. And this is huge for us as well. Because if you're here today and you say, I want to draw close to, to Christ, or I want to, I want to love better, I want to serve him, I want to get rid of sin or those things that pull me away, And I say those things, but then I don't take actual steps to move away and to even get rid of those temptations. Do my words really mean much of anything at all? We just go with the the status quo and nothing changes. But he has this holy discontent that says the status quo is not okay. Something needs to change. 
So we say, for instance, I, I want to get rid of pornography in my life. That's, that's something that can be kind of a stronghold. And so I want to get rid of pornography in my, my life. And I, I say this and, oh, God, help me with this. But then I don't take the steps to change the technology. Or I don't take the steps to get rid of that app or to cancel that service or to put that filter into place or to get that accountability or whatever it takes. Uh, we leave the door open to those things. Unless we get rid of it, we leave the door open. And this is a harsh description that the Bible gives us of this kind of lifestyle, but check it out. Proverbs 26 says this. He says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. That's the way the Bible describes people that keep going back to the same sin over and over again. And I know it's harsh, but as a dog returns to its vomit, so are, the, those, so are we when we return back to those same sins over and over again. So for instance, if you say, man, I, I, I want to beat alcohol. This thing has too much of a hold on my life and, and yet I, I, I don't join the group and I don't take that step to admit a problem and I, instead I drive by that same liquor store every night or I go out with those same friends, of course you're going to find yourself in that same place. If you say, I want to lose weight, but you have a refrigerator or a freezer full of ice cream, it just doesn't make sense. I, I, and the personal experience on that... Um, but I was thinking a little bit about this scripture. I think it's a really important scripture from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, uh, 26 says this. It says, do not let the sun go down while you are angry. So it says, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Why? And do not give the devil a foothold. So that passage is really about unresolved anger and why we need to not stew in our anger, but we need to move past that um, because of a number of different reasons. But specifically, unresolved anger, it says, does what? Gives the devil a foothold in our life, right? It's just, it's like I'm going to leave that door open for the devil to walk in. And here's the thing, unresolved anger definitely does that, but that's not the only thing. There are all kinds of things that if we don't get rid of them, if we don't slam shut that door and slam shut that window, the devil is going to come right back to those things. Josiah stands out as different because he doesn't just get rid of the things, but he smashes them uh, to powder and he destroys them. And that's what a holy discontent does. But it's not just a holy discontent. There's also what we want to call a holy ambition. There's a holy ambition that leads to Josiah making some generous sacrifices for God's kingdom. So holy uh, discontent is what, these are the things that I want to get rid of. These are the bad things I want to stop. A holy ambition says these are the good things that I want to move toward. And for Josiah specifically, his holy ambition for the things of God was to rebuild the temple or to uh, re-institute the temple. Because for the last many years, the temple had just been um, run down. And so he wanted to rebuild Yahweh's temple that had fallen into ruin. And here's what I want you to notice about his holy ambition. He was willing to do whatever it took for that to happen. Now we're in verse 9 of 2 Chronicles 34, and it says this. They went to Hilkiah, the high priest, and what did they do? They gave him the money. He, He gave him the money that had been brought into the temple of God, which the Levites, who were the gatekeepers, had collected from the people of Manasseh, Ephraim, and the entire remnant of Israel, and from the people of Judah, and Benjamin, and the inhabitants in Jerusalem. And then they entrusted it to the men appointed to supervise the work of the Lord's temple. So they're going to rebuild the temple, but what do they do? These men paid the workers. 
And they repaired and they restored the temple. And they gave money to the carpenters and the builders to purchase dressed stone and timbers for joists and beams for the building that the kings of Judah had allowed to fall into ruin. And the workers labored faithfully. And I love that because Josiah makes it his holy ambition to build God's kingdom. But notice several times in there, what does he do? He puts his money where his mouth is. He says, this is not just something I want to do, but I'm going to pay for it. And here's what I'm going to do. And so sometimes that holy ambition, the sacrifice is going to be the generosity of of money. But what we see here as a principle is that holy ambition and holy discontent and moving away from those things requires action. You can't just speak those words and not get off the couch and not sacrifice and do something about it or they are empty words. I heard kind of a, uh, an interesting, it's a true story um, about a, a, a man from India by the name of Dashrath Manji. Dashrath Manji was a goat farmer, um, a simple man. And one day they lived kind of out on, on a, a hilly area. And one day his wife falls there on the hillside and is badly injured. And so right away, he understands that he needs to get her medical care. There's no hospital or clinic or anything like that in his village. And so he's got to get her to the closest medical clinic, which is 45 miles away. So they load her up and they rush as fast as they can to get his wife to this medical clinic. But by the time she gets there, she has died. If she would have gotten there earlier and gotten the treatment, it would have been different. But she died in the, the way there. Dashroth is, of course, overcome with, you know, with, with grief. But part of his grief is he makes this decision that what happened to my wife can't happen to anyone else in my village. And so here's what he did. Before long, he went out to this mountain with a hammer and a chisel, and he began to chisel away at the mountain. And people laughed, and people made fun of him, and he was the only guy out there with just a hammer and a chisel and a little bit of a saw, and tw- or a little bit of a shovel. And 22 years later, they opened this little stretch of highway. And, and now the, the journey was not 45 miles, it was four miles. But what I love about that is the ambition to say, I just, I, this is not just something I want to do, but I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is. And for some of you, my, my question to you this morning is, do you have a holy ambition for something? Is there something that you would love to see God do? And maybe it's something in your life or maybe it's something in your family, but maybe it's something big. Maybe it's something in your ministry at church. I mean, I love the stories that we've seen up here on stage already this morning. People in their 60s that say, sure, I'll go be in, you know, missionaries. People that were just serving as volunteers in ministry that say, sure, I'd take that next step to be a staff person. And so is there something in your life, a holy ambition that makes you hit your hand on the table and say, that's not right. Something needs to change. In fact, there's a little box in your notes where you could just, just note that down if there's something like that. I just put this quote that you hear me say all the time, Lord, break my heart for the things that break yours. And, and that was true in Josiah's life. He looked around at his culture and he says, this breaks your heart. And so I'm going to be the one that makes some changes. So it's not just holy discontent that says I'm not going to accept the status quo. It's not just holy ambition that says I'm going to get rid of the, not just get rid of the bad things, but I'm going to rebuild the good. But the last thing I want us to see in Josiah is maybe the most important of all and is what we call a holy surrender. A holy surrender. And specifically for Josiah, it's a holy surrender uh, to God's word. He decides that he's going to change and reorient his life and reorient his, um, the whole nation around 
um, God's word. You see, for the last 75 years since Hezekiah, uh, there was Manasseh, who we, we talked about, and Amon, and then the, the early years of Josiah, the temple was in ruin. So we're about 75 years now where the temple had been used for not the worship of Yahweh, but idol worship. Over 75 years, things begin to fall into to disrepair. And so Josiah, we read, forks over the money and says, we're going to rebuild this thing and we're going to f- fix it up. And he makes that sacrifice. And while they were doing some of the cleaning and they were rebuilding and b- uncovering old stuff, they made an incredible discovery. It, they couldn't believe what they found. In fact, it reminds me of a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks ago now, um, our church staff, we always have staff meeting on Tuesday morning, and a couple times a year, instead of doing our, our staff meeting, we say, hey, we're going to do something, we're going to clean the church. And so a few, this is probably, I guess, maybe about six weeks ago now, um, we said, well, we're going to tackle some of the worst closets in the church, because, you know, we've been here 20 years, and stuff builds up. And so we all were assigned different closets, and people were digging into those things, and I mean, we found, you know, 20 years of Christmas decoration and old broken, you know, sound equipment from 20 years ago, um, cassette tapes and uh, CDs of sermons from the 1990s and um, some really incredible stuff. But here's the deal. It was nothing compared to what they found in Josiah's day because they were assigned to clean up the closets and get to work in this thing. And they're cleaning up and, and someone pulls this thing out and it looks like a scroll. And so he dusts it off and he blows it off and he gets it and he opens up the scroll and he calls Hilkiah, the high priest, to come over and take a look at it. And sure enough, sure enough, nobody was even old enough to know what it was. This was 75 years. Nobody had seen this. Nobody even kind of knew from firsthand experience what it was. But they opened it up and they said, this is the book of the law. We've been missing this. And so Hilkiah reads it himself and then he rushes it uh, to King Josiah. And it says this in, in 2 Chronicles 34, 19. It says, when King Josiah heard the words of the law, what did he do? He tore his robes. He tore his robes as a sign of respect for what he was hearing. He tore his robes as a sign of repentance for the things that they had not been doing. And he tore his robes, maybe most importantly, as a sign that says, we are going to reorient my life and my kingdom and my family around these things. I'm going to wholly surrender my kingdom to the truth of God's word. And that's what sets Josiah apart as such a godly king. And that is maybe the one that some of us need to take that step in the most. Because we come to church and we crack our Bible on a Sunday morning and we hear someone else talk about it and then it just sits on the shelf and gathers dust. If you are going to see change in your life, if you are going to see revival in your life, it starts with the word of God. And can I just tell you, it's not going to happen by accident, right? You can't just put your Bible under your pillow and hope that you, you know, get it at night. It doesn't happen by accident. And Josiah shows us some incredible things that he does. The first thing is Josiah, he's never known the book of the law. Maybe he'd heard it from this godly mother or grandmother, but he'd never seen it himself. And so he says, I'm going to study it. I'm going to study what it says. Verse 21 says this, Josiah says, go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the rest of the remnant of Israel and Judah about what has been written in this book. I've got to understand it. I've got to know what's in there. Go and inquire so that we can understand it. 
And for a lot of us, that first step is to say, I'm going to really begin to try to understand and study what the Bible says. I saw an article in the, the, actually the Lodi newspaper, just a, I think it was last week, uh, that said this, more people than ever see the Bible as fables than the actual word of God around the United States. And, and even among Christian people, people said, nah, I'm not sure really that the Bible is, is God's word. Now, we live in a day that is different than Josiah's day. We actually have more access to the Bible, and sometimes that works against us. We have so many Bibles on our shelf, we never pull one out. More people have access to the Bible through their phones than have ever had in any time of history. So the issue is not that we don't have access to the Bible, but if we leave those things uncracked and we don't allow its authority in our life, it might as well be hidden away at the bottom of the temple collecting dust. And so Josiah says, we got to inquire the Lord and we got to learn what this stuff means. Uh, Josiah does something else that's just so important. And if you did this in your life, it would begin to change your understanding of the Bible. And that is he shares what he's learning with others. Because sometimes we take it as so individual, but sometimes just speaking these other words to, to someone else, another trusted Christian, have those conversations. God's word becomes to come alive more and more. In verse 29 of chapter 34, we read this. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and he went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites. And I love this sentence. And all the people from the least to the greatest, everyone was there. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. And the king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and with all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in his book. And I don't know about you, but I love that. Because isn't that what we should be about every single Sunday, every time we gather together to remember the Lord's covenant and to open up God's word and to be instructed by it and to stand together and say we're going to love God with our whole heart and we're going to love him with our whole soul and maybe most importantly we are going to surrender our lives to follow this. We're going to surrender our lives to see this change. And so he studies it and he shares it and just to kind of tie it all up here as we're out of time, we see that Josiah actually puts that word into practice. He puts that word into action. So we're not going to look at it but the the whole next chapter is all about how they begin to reinstitute the the Passover. They take what's written in the word and they begin um, to live it out. And revival sweeps across the nation. And so my question to you is, Which of these holy movements do you need in your life? Have you been too okay with the status quo? And just, yeah, it's just sin. It's just that way. It's always going to be that way. Is it time to pound your fist on the table and say, something's got to change? Or maybe you've known what that is, but you haven't had that holy ambition to really take those steps and to, to sacrifice And maybe it's a holy surrender to God's word that says, I'm going to reorient my life, not around my desires and my will, but around what God has for me. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the the story of King Josiah and the the courage of a, a, a little boy who grows up to be a great king. And Father, his story is inspiring to us. And yet, Father, we know for any of those things to happen in our life, we need your help. And so thank you, Lord, for the gift of Jesus Christ and his grace to empower us and move us toward those things. And so I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here today 
Lord, that we would be people of surrender, holy surrender to you. Move all across this church in hearts and, and move in, in every person watching online's heart, Lord. That we would say, we surrender to you. Lead us, guide us, and we will go where you follow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.